Well, you know that the prophet of God was a spokesman of God. That the prophet was to speak the word of God. Sometimes the prophet would utilize what we might call a visual aid. God would call him to act out his prophecy. At times, he was the visual aid. Consider Isaiah. For three years, he walked around naked or in his underwear. The text can be interpreted either way. And since Isaiah wasn't in Seattle, this would have been weird. (laughs) What was the lesson? That Assyria would come and haul off God's people under great distress. They were putting their trust in other allies rather than their Lord God. A very visual attention getter. Consider Jeremiah. He wore chains and a yoke around his neck. God showed Judah that Babylon would come and drag them off in similar attire. Consider Hosea. He married a prostitute. That visual aid illustrated the spiritual adultery taking place. It was a picture of the unfaithfulness of Israel before her God and the penalty to come. And consider Ezekiel. His primary cooking fuel came not from gas or electricity, but manure. He baked bread over cow dung to show people the destitution waiting for them. Now, while we cannot know why God selected all of these means to show his people his point, we can know without any doubt who they served. The prophets served you. Yes, God, through them in their day, spoke to his people, but God spoke to them to you in your day as well. Well, this morning we'll learn two functions of this prophet ministry. And we're going to see what they did and we'll see why it matters for us. We were in the book of 1 Peter and 1 Peter writes to exiles. We might call them aliens or foreigners. At the moment of salvation, every Christian becomes an exile. We are now passing as pilgrims through this land. We're not of this land. We're not of this world, as Jesus says. But we're journeying to our greater destination. And as a result of this, this faith in Jesus, life gets harder. The trail a little rougher. And we're going to begin to take on a level of suffering for our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we get down, or I should say when we do, when we suffer... Peter reminds us of the astounding gift we've been given in salvation in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12 has been one long run-on sentence. Peter is listing, he's enumerating gift after gift after gift that comes as a result of faith in Christ. And he now concludes with the prophets. Verses 10 through 12. Perhaps 
Someone may still respond, you know, Peter, I don't see what I have is so great. It doesn't feel like it's so great right now, though I'm a Christian, but Peter would say, ask the prophets. Okay, Isaiah. Okay, Ezekiel. Okay, Zechariah. What do we have that is so grand? And what did you do to prepare it for me? Our first point this morning, the prophets prophesied grace. The prophets prophesied grace. This answers the question, what did the prophets do? Verse 10, as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The prophets prophesied and they investigated those prophecies. You notice in verse 10, right away, we're pointed backward as to this salvation. Well, Peter's been writing about this salvation. We mentioned that in the first few verses of chapter 1. In fact, in the last few leading up, verses 6 through 9, he describes our experience. As a Christian grows distressed by various trials taking place, something inside loves Christ. Something inside still believes in him. What's going on? How's this happening? Verse 9, you are obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And I hope that's your experience this morning if if you're coming in here and you're suffering and you're challenged with trials, that you too are finding a a love for Christ that resides and a, a faith in him. The prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you. At the outset of our message, you were introduced to one aspect of their ministry. You could imagine there's not a lot of replies to the job posting for prophet. And Peter here is writing of Old Testament prophets. These were men called by God to deliver a message on behalf of him. God called women to the office as well. Miriam was Moses' sister, and there was Deborah and Huldah from the Old Testament. And the prophet was given God's word to give where and when God directed. This prophet should not plan his own trip. God corrected Jonah, you may recall. This prophet could not hold in his message. Jeremiah describes that experience. It was like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And the prophet would not live long if he disobeyed, at least in some cases. 1 Kings chapter 13 records one lying alongside the road killed by a lion. Every prophet was called to prophesy. It's built into the title. And to prophesy was to proclaim a word from Almighty God. And every prophecy would have been 100% accurate, it would have been absolutely authoritative and been perfectly infallible. These prophets would foretell. They're declaring events yet to come in the future. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 is an example, but as for you, Bethlehem, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth to be ruler in Israel. You can hear the predictive nature of that prophecy. 
But they were also called to foretell. And this would be a ministry to their contemporaries. We might call it preaching. Jonah chapter 3, verse 4. He's walking through town. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. He's not predicting the future, not in the same way others were, but he's calling them to repentance. And you may recall that what galled Jonah so bad about that is that he knew God was a faithful God and he could rescue his enemies. And as Peter writes to these suffering churches, he says something of the prophets that may be a bit unusual. The prophets made careful searches and inquiries. The prophets were detectives. They were investigators. They're searching intently and and diligently and eagerly. The text says they made careful searches. That word goes beyond just a, a normal search for something. It speaks of a thoroughness. Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's that same word, that thorough, complete search. They made inquiries. At the time Peter wrote this letter, other authors were using this word to describe searching through a tent or searching through a house or searching through a city. Doesn't it say something about their interest in the Lord? A a deep, heartfelt desire to to know about Him? They possess quite a curiosity, quite an eagerness to, to know the God behind these prophecies. Verse 11 gets specific. We may want to know exactly what, what specifically were they looking for. It was what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating. They saw it essentially two discoveries. Now, a couple of Bible versions are going to read differently. Mine says it this way. They saw it what person or time. And that means that they're looking for who the person was and what time he would come. But other Bible versions read different. What, what time and circumstances? That has to do with when the person would come or, or how it would come about. A, a literal translation reads, seeking to learn into what and what time. It almost sounds redundant, doesn't it? Seeking to know what and what. Now, in the second place, the noun fills us in, seeking to know what time, but in the first place, we don't know. That's why different translations vary. There's seeking to know what person or what circumstances. The point here is that the prophets sought to understand their prophecies. And that means they did not always initially comprehend everything given by God. Daniel's a great example of this. If you've read the book of Daniel, you're kind of jiving with the first half of the book. Really great stories. He's conquering the lion's den and his friends are overcoming the furnace. He's like second in command to the greatest in the land. But then you hit chapter 7 you're like, whoa. Things get really rough. And it's hard to understand his prophecies. And Daniel would agree with that. 
Just like Daniel, listen to his firsthand account of, of what he's receiving from God. Chapter 7, verse 15, the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the meaning of all this. Chapter 8, verse 15, when I had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. In chapter 12, verse 8, I heard but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? A few months back in our Sunday school class, we studied Daniel 9, and we found Daniel sitting in Babylonian captivity, and he's reading Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophesies of 70 years for the completion of Jerusalem's devastation. In other words, after 70 years, something good is coming to this devastated city. And Daniel's reading Jeremiah, and he's looking at the calendar, and it's year 68, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer. He's trying to put these things together. So you're not the only one this morning who may struggle with Bible prophecy. The prophets did as well. These men were spokesmen, and these men were students. And and Peter writes in 2 Peter 1, verse 21, these were men moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God. But we also see this morning that they were students of those prophecies. They were students of the scriptures. And they were students of all the scriptures, all that they had in any given time. After the resurrection of Jesus, he's walking along this road with two disciples. We call it the Emmaus Road. And he's having a conversation. And like the prophets, they're trying to put these things together. What just happened? And Jesus says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And then listen to what he says. Beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. This means that Jesus surveyed the entire Old Testament. And all of it points to him. And like you and I, these Emmaus men, they had all of the Old Testament at that time. Now the prophets didn't. God revealed portions of his will and portions of his plan to prophets in different eras of time. We call this progressive revelation. Over time, God progressively reveals his plan. Each prophet had what he had at any time in which he lived and anything that came before. So comparatively speaking, David had this much, but Zechariah had this much. They had what God was giving them plus anything that had come before in history. So for them, it's like putting a a puzzle together. Only you're missing a few pieces and some have certain pieces and others don't. And as time goes along, there's more and more pieces to look at and try to piece together. And as they do, through each century, through each vision, through each dream, through each fearful encounter with the living God, I'm not talking only about these major prophets, we know them, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. We call them major prophets because their books are bigger in the Old Testament. Their prophecies are broader. 
And I'm not talking here only about those minor prophets. You know those tiny 12 at the end of the Old Testament. This is where we break down in our Bible book memorization. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Hosea. Those little books at the end of the Old Testament. They're called minor because their prophecies were more specific and the books are smaller. But the pieces of the puzzle are found in other men as well. Men like Abraham. In chapter 20, verse 7, God said to Abimelech, he is a prophet and he will pray for you. And it's found in men like Moses. In Deuteronomy 34, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And men like David even, in Acts chapter 2, because he was a prophet, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. You see, pieces of the puzzle could be found not only in the prophecies and the work of these men, but also in the deeds they did. Take the Exodus. That illustrates the example of spiritual deliverance the Messiah would bring. And consider Jonah's three days in the belly of the fish. That illustrates three days the Messiah may be in the tomb. And consider Jesus talking to Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, the prophets, they wrestle with all of this stuff. An ongoing revelation by the Holy Spirit happened inside of them. The Spirit of Christ, the text says, within them was indicating. And this is going to be a, a successive, multiple-time experience. The Spirit is predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Perhaps just one of those categories would have been better either the sufferings of Christ or the glories to follow. Because given both, it was difficult to put it together. Maybe just a simple puzzle. Just one of those. Our son Lucas at home, he's two. He has one of those nice, thick wooden puzzles. Melissa and Doug style. I mean, it's a thick piece of wood. There's eight pieces The places are cut out right where they go. Eight animals. It's got little red handles. Love those puzzles. Easy. But some of you are the 3,000-piece puzzle type. You're the most patient people on the planet. You know they make a Where's Waldo version of that? The point I'm making is that latter puzzle is what the prophets are working with as revelation is ongoing. And they're trying to put together all of these different things being predicted about the Messiah. They're having to marry the sufferings of Christ with the glories to follow. That God's Messiah, the Christ, that he would suffer, that the king would suffer. In fact, this very idea, you may recall, would become a stumbling block for the Jewish people then this same Christ, the one who suffers, glories are going to follow. It's mind-boggling. Suffering precedes glory. And for the Messiah, we know this now. This includes his resurrection and his ascension. It includes his sitting at the right hand of God. It includes an imminent return and an ultimate eternal reign. 
So for these prophets, how does this Christ, how does this Messiah, how does he experience both? How does it fit? And you may recall as well, this is not a conundrum unique to just the prophets. The Lord's own disciples didn't get it. Peter, struggling with this, as a result of his struggle, earned the nickname Satan. Remember, he, he rebuked Jesus when Jesus predicted his death and resurrection. Peter couldn't fit it together, and Jesus rebuked him. Get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, which are, by the way, recorded in the prophets. So just to put ourselves then this morning in the shoes of the prophets and to wager their experience, Isaiah had many puzzle pieces. In chapter 7, verse 14, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Two chapters later, in chapter 9, verse 6, a child will be born to us, a son will be born to us. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now there's a child who will be king. Later, in chapter 61, someone, some servant, speaks, saying, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted, and he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. When Jesus read that in Nazareth, he closed the book saying, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. But for Isaiah, 700 years prior to that event, somehow one would come, despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. What person or time is the Spirit indicating as he makes these predictions? The prophets prophesied grace, and they sought to understand this grace they prophesied. Now, if you're wrestling with prophecy this morning, you're not alone. If you're here this morning and you struggle to understand parts of the Bible or, or prophecies or how things fit together, you're not alone. The prophets, the very authors of Scripture, they had to deal with this puzzle. They didn't always see the finished puzzle. But I want you to notice something very important this morning. I want you to know, notice what they did about it. They hunted they studied, they examined, they filled their minds with the knowledge of God. Now look, I get it. There are many reasons not to do a deep dive into our Bibles this morning. You're busy. Your daily planner is fuller than a Bellingham dog parade. The Bible's boring. It's hard to appreciate something that doesn't entertain the Bible's irrelevant. I need something I can use right now. Perhaps you've tried it. Maybe it didn't take. Maybe it's hard to understand. The author of our letter this morning writes of Paul, chapter two, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. Paul writes things hard to understand. That's Peter writing about Paul. So in light of that, I want to invite you this morning 
in the spirit of these prophets to make time to do hard things and to set aside the trivial pursuits for just a moment. Today's church needs to regain a deep, robust knowledge of God. Emmanuel, you and I must be characterized by words like careful searches and inquiries and investigating. We need men and women in the Christian faith today who are ready to abandon that sappy, sentimental garbage of Christian bestsellers. We need men and women in Christianity today who can challenge the false teaching appearing on YouTube and social media and everywhere else out there. I mean, we need men and women today who have a theological backbone stronger than the channel lineup of so-called Christian TV. And if you're watching the thermometer that's gauging the Christian climate, you'd swear that there's a contest happening right now to get into heaven with the least amount of knowledge about God possible. How can I get into heaven without hardly knowing God? What is the minimum that I need to do to be saved? I think for you and I, we can just set aside those ways of thinking and we can move on to these better things that God has for us. Because you can do this. You can go deeper into your word. You can grow deeper in your knowledge of God. You can make friends with words like theology. It's not a bad word. It's not a scary concept. You're all theologians to begin with. You already have beliefs about God. We want those beliefs to be biblical. It's the study of God, a real and living God, a God whose spirit dwells within every believer already. It's the kind of study that will grow your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, a study of theology, it helps you think. It trains your brain. It's, it's good for you. It's good for your soul. And what happens with this study of God is it bleeds into other disciplines, things that are already happening in your life every day anyway. I mean, think about the things we're facing each day, mental health, conflict resolution. Some days we have to make really big life decisions, personal finance, theology, the study of God impacts how we move through those decisions. We're going to process everything. We're going to process it either biblically or unbiblically. Let's engage in the study of God to do it biblically. Secondly, theology gives you confidence in your faith. And Peter's going to write later in chapter 3, verse 15, that you and I need to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. If you don't know the hope that is in you, you can't give an account for that hope. Theology deepens your well. That way you know how to give an account for the hope that is in you, and you can speak from your heart because you have knowledge and a relationship with the living God. And theology, then, most of all, it deepens your relationship with Jesus. You need to know the Lord to have a relationship with him. The marriage relationship is an example. If you never talk to your spouse, if you never listen to your spouse, you won't have a very good relationship. And if you only ever hear from God on Sunday from this pulpit, or you only ever talk to God in emergency situations, that won't be a very good relationship. You know, the Lord wants more for you. And I suspect for the believer, you want more for yourself as well. The prophets prophesied grace. 
And they studied and they sought out with all of their heart what was going on to understand the God behind these prophecies. What a good example for you and I. And I want you to see, secondly, that these prophets served you. It's our second point this morning. The prophets prophesied grace and the prophets served you. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. And these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. That's an amazing thought, isn't it? The prophets served you. I tend to think of them as kind of this Old Testament, kind of in the dusty pages of history group of people. No, what they did was very relevant. And there's a direct line between their ministry and where you and I stand today. That's the result of their search, by the way, if you're thinking about this passage in the big picture. Here they are making careful searches and inquiries. They're wanting to know things. What did God reveal to them? They're serving you. They're serving a people that were yet to come or what would one day be called the church. And maybe you've picked up on it. Peter's been making this case throughout our text this morning. In verse 10, prophets prophesied of the grace that would come to you. In verse 12, prophets serve not themselves, but you. In verse 12, again, things which now have been announced to you. And one more time in verse 12, some have preached the gospel to you. The prophets, we would say, conducted an act of service for you. I call them waiters. They're table servants. In Acts chapter 6, verse 2, there's a situation where the 12 apostles in the early church, they need to get some help meeting the needs of people, table service. And they enlist other people to, quote, serve tables. It's the same word used of the prophets here, speaking of you, as used of waiting tables back in Acts 6. The prophets in their day set the table for you. They're going to bring you what you need. Don't get up. They'll fill your glass. And they're going to keep it full. They're going to keep it coming. That's what the prophets do. God and his prophets, we would say, has served up salvation for you. I want to ask you this morning, have you eaten? The invitation to come and dine, to come and receive what these prophets have done, that's an invitation for you this morning. Listen to what Isaiah says. He calls out, come, everyone who's thirst, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, he says, and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. He speaks here of a spiritual hunger, an emptiness, something within the human soul. We all sense that we're trying to plug it with different things. And Isaiah says, come, the Lord will feed you. He will satisfy that need. You see, sin separates you and I from God. And it even attempts to try to to, to mend that separation through a number of different means. He asks, why do you spend money for those things which don't satisfy? Jesus Christ will fill you. Jesus Christ will satisfy. 
And that's the call this morning, to come to him, to meet that need. He knows of your sin and he loves you. And he will redeem you and save you if you have not come to him yet in faith, turning from sin. And as you know him, as you eat what is good, to use the language of the prophet, you will delight yourself in abundance. There are many good things in life now, many pleasures and happiness, but there is a joy yet to be experienced, far surpassing them. The prophets, what they do is they serve up this good news for you. And I see verse 12, Peter writes, this is quite a team event. There's five different groups or individuals he's crowded into this verse. We already know the prophets are prophesying. We already saw a portion of the revelation that they received. We know that the evangelists are announcing. There are those who are proclaiming the gospel to you, what the prophets recorded. And we learn here that the Holy Spirit sent them. I think it's interesting how Peter has connected these eras of ministry In verse 11, the Spirit is working in the souls of the prophets. Now, or he's indicating the times and predicting the Christ in verse 11. But now in verse 12, he's working in the souls of the announcers. By the Spirit, Christians preach the gospel. There's a direct connection between these two eras. Fourthly, angels long to look into these things. Curiosity has marked who? The prophet's and the angels, we might say they yearn to learn what God is doing. On Easter, we read of of Peter arriving at the tomb, and he's stooping in, he's looking into this tomb. That's the same word used of the angels here. There's this excited anticipation. There's this getting down and examining happening with God's salvation. And what is the end game? What is all this building to? Whether it's angels or the Holy Spirit or prophets or evangelists. It's that one tiny pronoun, you. The prophets prophesy, the preachers preach, angels participate, the Holy Spirit energizes it all, and they do it for you. To quote Jesus, Truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. What are you going to do with what they left? That's the question for us this morning. As we reflect on the grace they've given us, as we reflect on the service they performed for us, I think today is a great day to reevaluate our relationship to God's word. That's an appropriate response in light of what these prophets have done. Just to consider God's methods in the prophets. To consider the the message that, that he's given us through the prophets. God has much to say to you about who he is and about who you are. Edmund Clowney, one commentator, has said it this way, the least disciple of Christ is in a better position to understand Old Testament revelation than the greatest prophet before Christ came. I thought that was a profound quote. I think so highly of these men and the work that they've done and what they've endured. But here you and I are on the other side of the cross with a a completed Bible. And God has much to say to us and much good to say through them. He's given us much to consider. He's given us much to be thankful for. So I say this morning, praise God for his prophets. And praise God for what they endured and for what they preached. And praise God for their tenacity. God has been kind to give us the prophets 
to give us his word and to give us his grace. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your methods. They are beyond our comprehension. We cannot hardly imagine the experience of your prophets, what they heard from you and what that experience was like. We cannot understand all the things you've called them to do, but we trust you and we know that they were right. We thank you for the word that you've left to us through the prophets. I pray for each person this morning, Lord, that they would be unintimidated by your word, that they would see it as a warm, inviting book, an expression of your love. And I pray that within each of our hearts, there would well up within us a desire to know you through your word. Thank you for loving us and thank you for knowing us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.